So we find ourselves winding down in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 12 this morning, page 1008 in one of those blue hardback Bibles. And we see this theme this morning of the idea of running. People have been running in races probably since the dawn of humanity. I'm I'm sure Cain and Abel probably had a foot race to see who could get to the dinner table first, and it hasn't stopped since then. Marathons have been around for literally thousands of years, kind of the very first that we know of, competitive endurance race. Endurance races have kind of kicked up a notch in the last 50 or so years as humanity kind of develops more and more extreme ways to test ourselves, pushing the limits of what the human body can do. Um, there's a great story of an, of an endurance runner. It's been around for a while. It's one of those things that gets passed around the internet. So you've probably heard of, or you may have heard of Cliff Young. He was a sheep herder in Australia, and there was this ultra marathon in 1983, a 544-mile um, endurance race called the Melbourne Ultra Marathon. And at the age of 61, this sheep herder showed up to this ultra marathon. Despite having no formal training, he thought he would give a shot, give his shot at this 544-mile race. He started out the first day at a snail's pace, sort of shuffling along, not even doing a proper running stride. And by the end of the first day, he was was woefully, pathetically behind, but he kept running. Everybody else went to bed that night to, to get sleep and to wake up and knock off another 60, 70, 80 miles, whatever they run in a day, but, but Cliff Young just kept running through the night. And he ran and ran and ran for nearly six days straight without stopping to sleep. He would stop to eat and get water. And, um, but he had grown up from the time he was a young boy running for days at a time across his sheep farm, chasing sheep, and they didn't, couldn't afford horses, and so he would go out and bring in the sheep and, and corral the sheep, and, and he won that race at the age of 61 in 1983 at a snail's pace simply because he didn't stop. He kept running, and he had built up literally over a lifetime this unmatched endurance and the ability to just run and run and run. Um, one of the toughest, most infamous uh, ultramarathon races is is called the Badwater. Uh, Hasn't been around, um, has been around I think for 40, 50 years, but it, it, unlike that 544 mile Melbourne race, this is a mere 135 miles, but it takes place in California from what I understand to be the lowest point in the continental U.S. to the highest point in the continental U.S. So it begins in Death Valley, which is not a great place to start an ultramarathon. And it goes 135 miles up to Mount Whitney in some of the harshest conditions imaginable. That is run straight through. And if you are an elite athlete who has trained and prepared, you, you hope to be able to get it done in 24 hours of straight running. Amazing. Amazing feat. But what we're going to find this morning in Hebrews chapter 12 is that the Christian life is, is very similar in a lot of ways, to that kind of endurance running. The Christian life is a race. We see that throughout the New Testament, that imagery, and it's not a sprint, okay? For most of us, it is day in, day out, month after month, year after year, pressing and pushing and testing our endurance. And just like running an ultramarathon, it's going to be long, it's going to be hard, and if you're a Christian, it means you must train. If you seek to follow Jesus, you must build up your endurance over a lifetime, You must be committed. 
and, and you can't stop. Yeah, we get to sleep at night, but, but we cannot stop pursuing Christ. We cannot stop running. We must be a people that run with endurance. And so that's what we're going to read about this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. We saw the last two weeks in Hebrews chapter 11, the author took us through what we call the halls of faith, these great images of these men and women of the old covenant who pursued the Lord Jesus, who lived by faith, who trusted in the promises, who never attained what they hoped for, but that walked by faith. And their example has stirred us. And so now in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to take all that we've seen in chapter 11 and the example of those men and women that pressed through in faith and say, therefore... Now, therefore, in light of what they have done, in light of what the Lord has done in and through them, now you run with endurance. And so here's what the Word of God says now in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Despite this, we have had earthly fa- excuse me besides this we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Amen. So verse 1 looks back over chapter 11 at the life of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and, and all the nameless people in Israel and says, therefore, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud, this great heritage of witnesses, this, these men and women of faith, since we walk now in their, in their heritage, this, this, these witnesses that surround us, and they're probably thinking they are of witnesses in two sense. First and foremost, they are witnesses to the power and faithfulness of God. They saw God work in their life, and so we can look at their testimony and be assured that just as he worked in their lives, he'll work in our lives. But secondly, he may be referring to them as, as witnesses. There's this 
sense of them seated in heaven looking on to the race that we are now running, that they've finished and now they are this cloud, this crowd of witnesses looking down, watching us. And so with both of these things in mind, we are now spurred and encouraged to say, now you also run with endurance just as they did. And verse 1 says to do that, first of all, you need to take off. You need to put aside every weight and every sin. And I mentioned there are these two things. On the one hand, the weight to run with endurance in the Christian life. You need to take off weights. That means anything that would hinder you, that would encumber your progress, that would slow you down. And just like an elite athlete is going to take off extra clothes and hats and jewelry, whatever is going to slow them down. Friends, we need to declutter our lives. We need to cut out distractions. We need to trim down time wasters, things that would slow us, distract us from running the race before us with endurance. But additionally, we need to put aside not just distractions, but sin. Sins that cling to us, that that you could translate that there, entangle us. Right? You can't run a, a race, a sprint, let alone a marathon, if you've got rope tied around your legs, right? You need to cut off the sins that entangle us, that threaten to trip us up. And, and then the call is to run the race with endurance that is set before us. See, the life of, of Christ is set before you. Every, every step, every path, every, every day the Lord has laid out, has set before you to run with endurance. And my race is going to look different than yours. Your race is going to look different than your spouse or your children. But we're called to run the race set before us. As Paul says, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize of Christ, of the resurrection, of eternal life with the Lord. To do that, verse 2 says, you need to run with focus. You need to, to look to Jesus. He's called there the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We're to, we're to run looking to Jesus, who is the founder of our faith. We've seen elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, Jesus has a variety of titles, son of God and high priest, but he's called the founder of our faith, the apostle of our faith. He's called the, the forerunner, means he's run before us. He's called the source of, of our faith. And that means the faith, the Christian faith, but also your faith. Jesus is the forerunner and the apostle and the founder of the Christian faith as our Savior, but also of your faith, the one that has brought you to life, who has birthed eternal life in you. Look to him, set your eyes on him. He's the founder of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. That means because of his death and because of his resurrection, you now are made perfect. You might remember Hebrews 10, 14 says that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the call that we have to, to lay aside hindrances and sin is now made possible because we have been perfected by Christ. He is the perfecter of your faith. And so now we can run with endurance. Now we can run slowly, yes, at times, gradually, yes, growing in humility, growing in sanctification, growing in righteousness, less and less unencumbered by the entanglements and hindrances and temptations of the world, running with greater, greater focus and clarity and efficiency because endurance builds in the Christian life, doesn't it? Because just as Christ died to cut you off from sin that you might be forgiven, just as he rose from the dead to give you eternal life, he now fills you with the Holy Spirit that through his death you're cut off from the power and the penalty of sin, and through his resurrection, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would grow in the fruit of the Spirit, that you would grow in obedience, that we could be free to more and more run unencumbered. And you talk to an older saint about your troubles, about your worries, about your distractions, about your temptations, and they say, yeah, I remember. I remember decades ago when those things used to tangle me and distracted me. 
but I've learned now to stay focused. I've learned now to run with my eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, it says, he endured the cross. He despised the shame of the cross. To die by crucifixion was a shameful thing. It represented the curse of God. And Jesus looked at at that curse, the shame that would be his on the cross. And yes, he wrestled with the Father, but at a certain point he looked down his nose at the curse of sin and he said, I can handle you. And he despised that shame and said, I'm going to do it anyway. And he endured the pain and he endured the punishment. Yes, physical pain and punishment on the cross, but not just physical. He carried the weight of your sin. He carried the eternal judgment of God. He endured all of this. How? Why? Because he set his heart on the joy that was laid before him. See, he knew that on the other side of the cross was the joy of his father. He knew on the other side of the cross was this this throne of grace where he would be seated in glory. He knew on the other side of the cross would be you and I. See, he went to the cross to win his brothers and his sisters back into God's kingdom, back into God's family. And, and every, every abandonment he faced, every suffering he faced, every temptation he faced, every whipping and beating and, and threat and false accusation and, and being condemned to die on the cross and the nails and the whipping and the bleeding and, and the suffocation he faced. Why? For the joy of having you and I with him now for all of eternity. For the joy of the sons and daughters of God coming into God's kingdom, calling us his brothers, the book of Hebrews says. That we could have eternal life, that we could share in his glory. That's the beautiful good news of the Christian faith. And friend, I would encourage and invite and call you this morning. If you've never set your eyes on Christ, if you've never looked to him as the founder of your faith, if you've never seen Jesus as Savior, Maybe to you it's been about church and a place to find connection. Or to you it's been about a a good place to raise kids and find morality. Or to you it's been a place where you can come and, and maybe try to do some good deeds to alleviate your guilt. This morning, come to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who because of the joy that he could see in having you by his side, he faced death and he rose from the dead, and he now calls you, trust in me, believe in me, follow me, run the race with me, and you'll have eternal life. So trust him, put faith in him again this morning. Put faith in him for the first time this morning that you can walk out of here, not wandering, not distracted, not running a race in the world, not too tired to even get up and run, but walk out of here this morning saying, I'm now running after Christ, and by his spirit I can have endurance to live through all the hardships of this life. And so now, because of his work that he's accomplished, verse 2 says that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of grace. We've seen again and again this theme throughout the book of Hebrews, right? As we've seen that Jesus is better, better than the Old Testament prophets, better than the law of Moses, better than the tabernacle and the sacrifices. Why does the book of Hebrews remind us that Jesus is better, superior? Why does the book of Hebrews remind us that Jesus is seated on this great throne of glory and this great throne of grace in heaven beside the Father. Why? So that you and I can draw near. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence, not whimpering, not cowering, not unsure of his love and his grace, but with confidence we draw near to this throne of grace. Why? So that at the throne of God's grace and love we can receive mercy and we can find grace to help us in time of need. With his, if your life is like mine, it's every moment of every day that we have needs. 
And so we fix our eyes on Jesus in this race of endurance. He is the founder, the perfecter of our faith. And when we fix our eyes on him, we are enabled to run with endurance. Literally, the Greek word there for fix your eyes means look away from all else. That's why some translations say fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look away from all else. If someone powerful and famous walked into this room let's say it was after church. Okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. After church, and I don't know, pick, pick a famous person, you know, Patrick Mahomes, although apparently he's got into trouble this week, but Dwayne Johnson, who people say is the most famous person on earth right now. Let's say LeBron James, whatever musician, famous person, famous preacher. If they walked into this room after church amongst all the commotion and the dismissal and stacking chairs, most of us would do what? Right? Your wife would be coming up to you. Your kids would be telling you they're hungry for you just be watching. What are they here for? What are they doing? I can't take my eyes off. I'm, I'm so curious. I'm so, who are they, they going to talk to now? What are people saying? Right? Your eyes would be fixed. The building would, could burn down around you. Half of us wouldn't even notice it. Right? Our eyes would be fixed. That's the picture that this says. Run with that kind of dedication and focus that you are looking so firmly at Christ that you're looking away from all else. That's the posture of the Christian life. Your eyes, your heart, your time, your energy, your passions, focused, dedicated, honed in on Jesus. And through that, through keeping your eyes on Him, we're enabled to run with endurance. Now what is endurance? Endurance means that when you face hardship in this life that you're persistent. To run with endurance means that when obstacles come up, and they will, that you have the stamina to face those obstacles. That means that when you are weak and tired and you want to sit down on the sidelines and say, God, can I just hit pause on the Christian life? Can I just have a weekend to do what I want? Can I just disengage and distract and, and, and maybe find some pleasure in the world, but, but maybe just, just veg? Endurance with your eyes on Christ means that you have strength when you didn't think you could. It means that you persevere when you want to give up. It's persistence, it's stamina, it's strength, it's perseverance. Some of you have been following Christ for just a few weeks and, and, and you're still on that, that initial new love runner's high. But guess what? It's going to get hard. And as weeks turn into months and months turns into years, there will be hardships and obstacles where you will need endurance As Hebrews 10.36 says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We all need endurance in the Christian life because it is an ultramarathon. It is an endurance race. You can read different stories about ultramarathons and endurance races and heroic stories, but you don't even have to get on the internet. And unfortunately, Craig and Hope are not sitting in their typical assigned seat. I think they went to go visit uh, Emma at school, if I'm not mistaken. But we have our very own endurance athlete here at at Living Hope. Craig is is literally, and I'm not using this word lightly, he is an elite endurance athlete. If you know Craig Whiteford, he's one of our elders, oversees our our men's ministry team, and and Craig has competed and and done extremely well uh, in triathlons and marathons and in Ironman races. And this June, he's actually part of an eight-man cycling team that's going to do a 3,000-mile bike race coast-to-coast, 
start on the East Coast, end up in California, race across America. It's called RAM, R-A-A-M. And they're going to ride continuously his eight-man team 24 hours a day for a week straight. And you can do the math. It was eight people over 24 hours. I'm not sure how many hours and miles a day Craig is going to be racing. But as this eight-man team is doing this uh, race across America, they are doing it to raise money for an organization called Zoe International. And you can, you can literally right now, if you want, pull out your phone and Google Craig Whiteford Zoe International, and, it, and it'll come up. And Craig's personal goal is to raise $20,000 through this race for Zoe International. We're going to put the link up this week in our newsletter and social media, but Zoe International um, is a Christ-centered organization whose mission is to end human trafficking. And they're at work around the globe with prevention, with rescue, and and with restoration for, uh, yes, adults, but but by and large, young boys, young girls that are horribly, horribly being being, uh, kidnapped and trafficked. And Zoe is doing good, good work. And you talk to, Craig's excited about the race. He's excited about the adventure. He's excited to, you know, push his, his, his limits and yes, he's committed and he's dedicated and, and he, he, I told you a couple weeks ago, I don't know why I talked about Craig twice in a month, but um, I guess because he's a godly man whose faith I want to imitate. But man, Craig monitors his calories, he gets up early, he trains for hours and hours a week, right? You don't go into a 3,000 mile bike race lightly. And he's built up this endurance over years of training, but he's not just doing this to push himself to win a race, he's not just doing it for the adventure, He's, he's committed to this ministry of Zoe International. He's, he's committed to making a difference. He's committed to the name of Jesus, serving and ministering to those in the deepest, darkest places. And he is training and riding and on this mission that he's going to begin this June with his eyes fixed on Jesus. And I believe that. This, this race is part of Craig's race, his Christian faith and his endurance is now going to be pressed physically, but also emotionally and spiritually and he's going to not run hard, but in this case, ride hard because of the joy that's set before him. Because he, he knows that the Lord is pleased with his energy and his effort. He knows that, that he's going to do good. And, and I don't know about you, the church has already given towards his $20,000 goal. Man, I'd love for us to help, help uh, raise that $20,000 for this ministry. As I said, you can click on that link this week. But here's a, an example of both a man who is, is, is building physical endurance, but at the same time fixing his eyes on Christ and building his spiritual endurance as he seeks the Lord for strength and for discipline uh, to run and ride hard for the Lord. And that's our call to run with endurance the race that's set before us, to have that goal and that prize, not our own glory, not not our own win, but our eyes set on Christ, who is the author, who is the perfecter of our faith, who is at the finish line with us. See, Jesus is the example of that perfect runner, right? He's showing us how to run. Jesus has already seen all the ups and downs of life, He has pushed through every temptation, the book of Hebrews has told us, every temptation that you have faced, Jesus faced before you. Every struggle that you've suffered, every hardship and pain that you've suffered through, Jesus has already gone before you. We fix our eyes on him because he's an example, right? He knows where to go. He knows how to get there. He has run the race ahead of us. He's the lead runner. He knows where the finish line is. You want to finish the race well? You want to get to the end of your life having run with endurance? Follow Jesus. 
Because he's already at the finish line and he's now waiting for you, showing us where to go. And not only is he at the finish line, but he's the prize at the end of the finish line. He, he's the example that we run after, right? He's the direction that we run toward, but he's also the prize that we get. We get Christ. We get life with God. You know, it's interesting that I'm told, at least, I've never uh, run competitively. Don't run hardly much at all. Runners don't run to the finish line, right? Like, you're not looking at the finish line when you're running. You're looking past the finish line, right? You pick a point on the other side of the finish line, and that point is Jesus. Imagine him already has finished. We don't have to imagine. He has already finished. And he's on the other side of the finish line, and he's standing there, and he's waiting for you, and he's cheering, and he's welcoming you. Keep it up. Run hard. I've done it. I'm with you. You can do it. Put, my, put your eyes on me. Don't look around you. Don't look at the ground. Don't look at the finish line. Don't look behind you. Don't look at the distractions. Don't look at, at that refreshment stand. Keep your eyes on me and run with endurance. Don't stop. Don't give up. I'm with you. And, and through faith in Christ, through his spirit in you, we can finish the race. We can say the words that, that, that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4. We can get to the end of our life and say, I have fought the good life. Jesus, by your grace and by your mercy, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. God, by your grace, would you enable us to proclaim this one day, that we've finished the race, that we've run hard. We've kept our eyes on Christ. See, one of the ways that you can get through life and run with endurance is by fixing your eyes on Christ. But there's another section of this passage that we read beginning in verse 3. That part of running with endurance is not just fixing your eyes on Christ, but it's, it's learning how to face suffering. And I believe this passage shows us that we need to receive suffering in this life as God's loving discipline. Look, look with me at verse 3. It says, consider Jesus who endured great hostility from sinners. He was falsely accused. He was mistreated, abused. He was crucified. But Jesus endured the greatest suffering of any human being. Again, not just physical pain, but the emotional suffering of the sin of the world. Consider this example. Why? So that you will not grow weary. Consider what Christ has done so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, listen, Christ is not asking you to run a race that he himself has not already run. He's not that kind of leader. He's not that kind of savior. He's already done all that he's asking you to do. Now, in in the book of Hebrews, these Christians are at risk of growing weary and giving up because they're being persecuted. As we've read already, they're they're suffering. They're being afflicted. Some of them are being publicly scorned and imprisoned. Some of them have had their property confiscated. And so, yeah, like you and I, they may feel tired. They may feel weary. But verse 4 says, Continue that struggle against sin, against giving up, against growing faint-hearted. See, verse 4 says that every Christian struggles against sin, but the verse there says that in your struggle against sin, and most of us can say the same things that are being said to these readers, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your struggle against sin. See, even though these Hebrew Christians were facing persecution and hardship, most of them had not been tortured, had not been asked to give up their life. They were suffering, but not to the shedding of blood. And so the author calls them to press on and endure. And that same thing is true for you and I, no matter how hard it gets, the temptation that we face, the struggle that we face, no matter how difficult it may seem, the call is, is to continue to press on because you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. What's that of reference to? Well, Christ resisted all the way to the point of shedding blood. 
faced everything that the world, the flesh, and the devil could throw at him, and yet he endured. And so now the call for you and I is to run with endurance, with our eyes fixed on Christ, not giving in to temptation, continuing to struggle and resist. I remember as a young man memorizing this scripture, like many young men in this room, as a 20-year-old at college, founding myself surrounded by the world, there was struggle, there was battle, there was battle against, against lust and against the pool of the enemy and, and wrestling with the Lord. And, and I remember meditating on this scripture as the Lord called me, yes, but you can continue to resist. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And so hold on, stand firm in me. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate what the Lord did for us on his cross, the one who did shed his blood, who resisted all the way to the point of shedding blood that now you and I can find forgiveness. Now, even in our failures, even when we give up too soon and we give in to temptation, now you and I can find freedom and forgiveness and hope for a new start because Christ did shed his blood for you and I. So let's even now begin to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Verse 5 says, as you face suffering and hardship in this life, don't forget don't forget the exhortation that God has given to his sons. And, and he's there reminding us, calling us to Hebrews 3, 11 and 12. He's going to quote Hebrews 3, 11 and 12. And he's going to say, my son, don't, don't regard lightly. Don't downplay or dismiss the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline there means his, his, his rearing of us as his children, his his raising us as his sons and daughters, the training that parents do for their kids. So first, he's really saying two different things in verse 5 there, this quote of Proverbs 3. Number one, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. But number two, don't be weary or lose heart when you're reproved. So there's two things going on here in this passage. On the one hand, we, we can too lightly regard God's training. Right? And if you too lightly regard God's training, you're going to just dismiss it and, and say, ah, it's not a big deal. Or you can grow weary and you can lose heart by his correction, his rebuke, his reproof. And what, what will that do? Well, that'll make you discouraged. That'll make you think God's hand is too heavy for you to bear. And that it's not really his love. And you can make either mistake. You can face suffering and hardship in the Lord's discipline and you can downplay it. Or you can, you can get take it too harshly and get and get discouraged but the passage says no no you need to rightly assess the lord's discipline rightly assess what god is doing in the midst of your suffering because verse 6 says the lord's discipline his training comes from his love he he disciplines those he loves he chastens meaning meaning to to scourge to correct to reprimand a son or a daughter he chastens every son that he receives into the family now, this section of Hebrews is addressing the suffering of life, but it's talking about two different types of suffering, right? And two different ways that the Lord disciplines us through our suffering. The one, the one is, is training, the other is correction. When you face a hardship in this life, sometimes the Lord is correcting you, rebuking you. Other times he is training you, he's building discipline. And so the word here that we translate discipline actually has two senses in the Greek, similar to how we have two senses in, in English, right? We use the word discipline in two different ways as well. And so we'll say, I'm, I'm teaching my child discipline, and so I'm setting up boundaries and limits on his phone, and there are certain times of day when he can and cannot get on his phone. I'm setting up these boundaries, why? To discipline him, to, to, to train him to be self-controlled. 
But there's another way that we use the word that, that you say, I am disciplining my child, meaning I'm correcting him. Why? Because he failed to be self-controlled. He snuck onto his phone after bedtime when he wasn't supposed to be, and now he's being disciplined. Now his phone is being taken away. His screen time is being taken away. Do you see what I'm saying here? Discipline can be a, a type of training. God trains us through suffering that we can endure and be disciplined and self-controlled. Other times, suffering is a form of discipline where we're actually being corrected and rebuked by God. Somebody nod if that makes any sense at all. Okay, thank you. So let me show you how this works out. If you rebel against God, if you disregard God and disobey His will and give in to sin, you will likely face the Lord's loving discipline. You will be corrected. You may, you may be reprimanded by God, by the Holy Spirit. You'll face consequences. Sometimes those consequences and that, that loving discipline and correction is simply your own internal shame and guilt. You sin, you feel bad, that's God's loving discipline correcting you. The Spirit convicts you. You're, you're chastened and reprimanded by His Holy Spirit. At other times, you may find consequences to your sin. You might find natural consequences or at times supernatural consequences of your actions. So, so it works like this. If you're a Christian, if you're following the Lord Jesus, but you drink too much, maybe you have a past with abusing alcohol or maybe the stress and strain of life is too much and, and a glass of wine with dinner has now turned into three or four or, or a, a beer on Friday night has now turned into five or six and you're, and you're drinking too much to relieve the stress of your life, to look for an outlet you will likely feel at some point conviction and, and shame before God if you're a believer. But you also may find natural consequences, right? If things get really out of control, you could at some point lose your driver's license. You could lose your job. If it's bad enough, God forbid, alcoholism could cause you to lose your family. You could at some point lose your liver. You could just have physical consequences, right, to that disobedience. That's the Lord's reprimand. You're facing hardship and suffering due to your abuse of alcohol. That's God's loving discipline. In the midst of that, God calls you to endure and recognize that is God's loving hand to call you back, to correct you, saying, don't you see consequence after consequence, come back to me and help me free you from this alcohol abuse. But there's another way that you can suffer in this life, not, not God's corrective discipline, but his training discipline. See, there's another way that we face suffering and hardship that's unrelated to our own personal sin. It's not discipline in the sense of reprimand, as we see in verse 11, it's discipline in the sense of training, like a coach Right, who puts his team through drills, through running, through disciplining, wearing them out during practice. Why? So that they're ready. So that their endurance is built up to make them stronger, better athletes. And so you can lose your job because you're a drunk. But some of you have, have lost jobs not because of sinful choices, but just because of a bad economy and layoffs. And you're suffering through that. You might get liver disease not because you drank too much, but just because we live in a fallen world where there's disease. And you suffer something that, that came upon you through no fault of your own. You might lose your car not because you got drunk and crashed, but maybe just because it was icy and you slipped off the road. And we live in a fallen world where rubber wheels don't get good traction on ice. And now you're, now you're suffering. Not because God is rebuking or correcting you for sin, but he is using that suffering and that hardship to train you, to discipline you, to build up your endurance. This is part of the race that's set before us, part of God's discipline, part of him training us as his sons and daughters. As verse 10 says, for our own good, that we might share in his holiness. 
See, if you've walked away from the Lord and are, are suffering the consequences of that, God's ultimate desire is for you to turn back and to find forgiveness and freedom in Him. But if you're facing hardship and suffering and pain in this life simply through the brokenness of this world and death and disease or, a, or, or an earthquake or, or, or a, a bad economy or corruption in the world, God's desire is even that would be for your good, that you might share in His holiness. And you might not like suffering and hardship in this world. In fact, we likely never do. But part of the way, listen, part of the way that your loving Heavenly Father raises you as His son or daughter is to push you and stretch you and walk with you through seasons of suffering. And so verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Or another way to translate that would be to say that you endure suffering as God's loving discipline. When you suffer in this life, receive it as God's love. You say, but Pastor Tim, that doesn't make any sense. I understand. Trust God, ask Him for faith, and walk through periods of suffering and say, Lord, this is your fatherly discipline to train me, not to correct me, but to train me to be more and more in your likeness. See, receive suffering as God's loving discipline. Doing that enables you to run with endurance. And so we're called as Christians to endure suffering, to press through hardship because God's suffering is his discipline. Either it's his correction or it's training, but either way, listen, either way it comes from his love. Hear that. See, when we sin and face God's discipline or when we find ourselves in the midst of grief and pain and hardship, it's driven by his love. See, discipline is not punishment. Punishment comes from judgment. Those that do not follow Christ will, in this life or certainly one day in eternity, face punishment. Punishment comes from judgment. You stop a criminal. You uphold justice through punishment. But discipline comes from love. Discipline is giving to a child who belongs to you, who you are with, who you're fighting for their good. And we are sons and daughters of God, and so we are disciplined by his love. And yes, that hurts, and yes, it's hard but sometimes it hurts because of God's love and his desire to train us. I remember the very first house that we owned, we were living in Elkton, and we found this tiny little Cape Cod. It wasn't that tiny, but it was a small Cape Cod on Hollingsworth Avenue. And Hollingsworth Avenue was a little side street just a couple blocks long, and there were no driveways on Hollingsworth Avenue, which means that on this already narrow street, you had cars parked on both sides of the street. And, and cars would barely fit down the middle. And with cars parked on both sides of the street, you couldn't, you couldn't see what was coming or what was going. And I remember the first time being out, and it's a vivid, one of those vivid parental memories. I remember being out in the front yard with my toddler, Simon, probably, I don't know, three years old. And I remember the first time I turned for a second, and he wandered out in between the two parked cars to go out into the street. And you, you can't see what's coming in a situation like that. And I remember grabbing him before he got into danger, grabbing his arm and pulling back in. And I remember this thought in my head, this needs to hurt. I'd spanked him before, but I thought, I, this, I'm going to spank him right now and I'm going to make it hurt. And I spanked my three-year-old in a way to hurt him because I loved him. And because I was training him, you do not step off of that curb and go into this street. And so in love, I hurt him that day to train him, to discipline him, to guide him, to lead him in the path of life, not in the path of going out into that street, which would ultimately be injury or death. And God's love is so great that he will even lead us into suffering to deal with us as sons, verse 7 says. 
After all, what son is there whose father doesn't discipline him? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a, a father who doesn't discipline his son? At the time that this was written, people probably couldn't imagine it. Now, unfortunately, we can imagine it, right? Now, don't look around the room right now at somebody seated here, but we don't have to imagine very hard to imagine what a, a boy or girl is like whose parents don't discipline them, right? But it's absurd. Why wouldn't a loving mother or father discipline their children? Of course they would. We give our children boundaries. We discipline them. If not, they go haywire. And so verse 8 says, without discipline in your life, you would be illegitimate. If the Lord wasn't disciplining you, you would be an illegitimate child, not a son of God, not loved by the Father. See, a child whose father cares so little about him that he won't even take the time to discipline him, he's not a true child with a dignified place in the family. Verse 8 says he's not a child at all. God forbid that, that any of us be in that place where the Lord isn't actively disciplining us. Listen, when you face suffering and hardship in this life, when you experience grief and loss and pain and disappointment, when, when people sin against you, when, when the fallen nature of this world steals things from you that you love, don't for a moment think God is absent in this season. Don't for a moment think that God has left you in that season of suffering. In fact, suffering is actually an indication of God's fatherly upbringing. In the midst of suffering, God is with you. He is disciplining you, training you, building your endurance in that moment because he loves you. And so verse 9 says, look, think about earthly fathers. They discipline us. We respect them for it. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of all spirits and therefore have life? Right? Human fathers only discipline us for a short time based on what seems good to them, but God disciplines us, verse 10 says, for our eternal good so that we could be like him, so that we could be holy and pure from sin. Guys, listen, we're going to suffer. We're going to face hardship in this life. And the only way that you can get through it with endurance and continue running, continue in faith, is if you receive suffering as God's loving discipline. Receive suffering as God's loving discipline enables you to run with endurance. You say, but it's too hard, it's too difficult, and I, I understand it in principle, but in the moment, how can I trust a, a, a God who loves me in that way? And so verse 11 says, yeah, you're right. In the moment, no discipline seems pleasant. No discipline is delightful while it's happening. It's painful. And you might be experiencing pain right now. Maybe some of you are suffering, you're facing hardship, dealing with temptation. Maybe some of you are in the midst of an overwhelming trial. It may be because of your own sin. And maybe some of us today need to turn back to the Lord and say, I need to give up this habit. I need to confess this sin to my spouse. I need to go to my small group leader, my accountability group. I need to ask for prayer because this pattern, this hidden sin is bringing God's corrective discipline in my life and I need to let it go today. Others of you are being sinned against. Someone's hurting you, abusing you, mistreating you. Others of you today are facing the reality of a fallen world, and you have a cancer diagnosis, you have a, a, an illness, you have pain in your bones that is through no fault of your own and through no fault of anyone else. It's just the reality that this world is broken, and yet one day restoration will come, and, and none of these things are pleasant. 
but, but they're seeds planted in the soil, verse 11 says. And, and, and after they're planted, those that have been trained will yield the fruit of a peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, discipline is hard. There's nothing about this that is pleasant in the moment. But those who endure, who hold on, are being trained. And on the other side of discipline is what? Is joy. Is, is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that you have the pleasure of God, that you have a pure heart, and that you're reflecting the righteousness of Christ. And one day, those that have endured to the end, that have crossed the line only by God's grace, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that have held on by faith as these great cloud of witnesses do, one day will be welcomed into eternity. And that joy, let it be set before you and let it be what builds endurance and strength in you. Fix your eyes on Jesus that you might run with endurance because he has founded your faith and he will perfect your faith and he will sustain you and enable you every moment of every day to wake up and to say, I'm ready to run another mile, Lord. And as your eyes are fixed on him and you face obstacles and hardships and the hills get too steep and too tall and you keep waiting, you keep waiting. Some of you for decades have been waiting for the hill to crest. God, when am I going to be running downhill? And it feels like suffering. God says, I love you. I am training you. I am building endurance and I am forming you more and more into the image of Christ.